The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good morning, everybody, and thanks for turning in to Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show on WDWS. I'm here with my regular guest, I'm Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, good to see you. Yeah, good to be here. And certified financial planner professionals, David Rudy and Ryan Repko, who work with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Morning, guys. Morning. Good morning. Uh, and by the way, for those watching this on uh, Facebook, I got my new reading glasses in. <laughs> they send them, and they're pink. So <laughs> you may notice that. There's been a color change in my reading glasses. They're pink. Uh, Ryan, I, Paul says there's no sound on the uh, Facebook Live. I don't know if you can do anything about that, but we'll move on. You can call in with your questions to 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. Again, we want to welcome those who are tuning in on Facebook Live. Hopefully, we'll have the sound up and running for you. If not, you can just look at Fred. I guess that's what they'll do today. <laughs> it's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, morning, guys. Uh, boy, now all the alarm bells, Fred. Everybody's saying the yield curve inverted. Right. You want to explain to people, one, what that means, and two, what that means? <laughs> Well, usually a, a yield curve is the uh, difference between uh, long-term and short-term interest rates. And generally, uh, long-term rates are higher than short-term rates. But in certain situations, uh, the uh, uh, curve may uh, tilt the opposite direction. And we're close to that situation now where uh, short-term rates may be uh, somewhat higher than long-term rates. And again, the argument is that uh, the long-term rate is, is dictated more by expectations about inflation the short-term rate is more expectations in uh, the near term. And right now, uh, the, the economy is, is on a, a kind of uh, edge, but not an edge between recession and expansion, but an edge between faster growth and slower growth, I think, that most people believe is somewhat slower growth now, which is quite different from a, a recession. So that may be some of the, the uh, concern here. Uh, there's also an item of, uh, probably most people didn't notice it, but of local interest. Uh, uh, President Trump uh, nominated Stephen Moore to I be the, uh, uh, on the Federal Reserve uh, Board of Governors. He actually is a uh, University of Illinois graduate about 30 years ago, and he was um, 30 some years ago, and uh, a resident of Illinois. It's kind of strange because he's, he's a long term, long time. Uh, a columnist and writes a lot about the economy, but uh, hasn't been really thought of as a monetary kind of person. But showing uh, how, how much uh, uh, Trump devotes to this, he read an article, uh, an op-ed piece by Moore in the Wall Street Journal, and thought it was so good that he decided to nominate him to the the board. So it's going to take some time now because he hasn't been vetted yet. Oh, what's your, you know, my initial views? I, I follow him, and I, I've, I've read quite yeah. a bit of his work, and he seems like for the most part. Uh, fairly common sense oriented, uh, kind of more market driven. Would that be fair to say? I think so. Uh, again, uh, there's kind of a, a, a close uh, uh, kind of association of economists, and economists want uh, someone who really is an economist in the uh, Federal Reserve uh, Board making those kind of decisions. So I think most most of uh, uh, people I know are not particularly thrilled about the, the nomination because he didn't have the expertise or so on of, of many of the people who have served in the past. But you could argue that they haven't always done that great a job either. But uh, I would rate him high as a journalist, but uh, kind of a little bit unknown as a active policymaker. Yeah, it almost seems like he doesn't fit the mold to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, the pedigree mold, well, I guess. pedigrees don't always work either. Uh, sure. There's an economist named Peter Diamond who won the uh, Nobel Prize about uh, eight or ten years ago. And he was nominated for the Federal Reserve Board. He was turned down because he wasn't qualified. Yeah, so <laughs> you, you can't tell. Well, it seems like uh, inflation expect expectations have really uh, diminished quite a bit. Right. I, I was looking at the five-year uh, real yield. So the what the on a 
Treasury inflation protected security, you know, and it fell since November. It, it was up 1.16%. Right. It was the real interest rate on that five-year note. Now it's mm-hmm. down to about 50 basis points or one-half of 1%. Right. That suggests to me, is, along with a lot of the language the Federal Reserve is using, uh, that certainly implies that, the, you know, the Fed thinks things are moderating and inflation's not a problem and they can – they, they came out and said it, they don't look to be raising interest rates anytime soon. Yeah, they backed off uh, very quickly. Uh, most people expected a, a gradual increase in rates over a multi-year period now, and they're, they're holding things in place, at least it looks like, through the end of the year. Uh, again, there's a, no one's ever happy with uh, all these policy issues, but traditional kind of conservatives are a little bit wary now because we have a huge deficit that uh, getting bigger rather than smaller during an expansion. And at the same time now, uh, the, the uh, new appointee more is a, a, a low-interest kind of person wants to lower rates even more. And the argument is uh, if you have extremely low rates during an expansion and an extremely big deficit during an expansion, what are you going to do when uh, the bad times come? We don't have much ammunition left right now. There really isn't. And, uh, you know, when you look around the world, uh, you look at our 10-year Treasury at somewhere close to 2.5%, 2.6% is the yield on a 10-year Treasury. But, you know, you go to Germany and you know, around the globe, and some of them are still right around zero. Well, I think the Swiss uh, might even be negative. Is negative now, so you have to pay, money, pay the bank to keep your money. Yeah. So a lot of people are now all of a sudden – course this has been going on for a few months but now the horn seems to be sounding and everybody's oh this means we're going to get a recession as if it it it, people i've seen a lot of articles uh and questions and people on tv that act as if the fact that we're nearing i don't think we're really inverted yield curve but uh certain flattening that is shorter term rates and longer term rates are kind of coming down to parity um I don't think it necessarily – it's not a 100% chance that we're going to have a recession in the next few months or anything like that. It just not at all. Uh, there almost always is, a, is an inverted yield curve before an, uh, a recession, but there are lots of inverted yield curves that don't result in inflation. So it's kind of a warning sign but not a, not a definite sort of thing. It's sort of things are a little bit different than they were. And, again, uh, I think the, the real story is that contrary to what uh, – some people hoped we're not going to live in a, a three or four percent growth world, right. and we're probably back down to uh, bumping along at two percent, which isn't great. But two percent is a lot better than negative rates, which is a recession. Yeah, it's just kind of a ho hum economy, uh, still growing, not at the rate you might like it to, but uh, and that may be, that may be the way the world is going to be for some time now. So again, we'd like it to be the old days of. Three or four percent growth, but uh, right now it doesn't seem like it's in the cards. Well, I got my first email from a client yesterday, Dave. You saw it, and it's hey, the inverted yield curve. Should we get defensive? Uh, of course, he got about a two-page response from me, not arguing whether we have an inverted yield curve or not, or that it's mm-hmm. going to cause a recession. I never, I don't, I don't engage in that type yeah. of thing. I just, I always try to circle back and say, hey, we don't do that. Yeah, uh, there's, well, there's a whole industry uh, that, that's out there, and most people in the advisory business and the punditry business are happy to sell you on the idea that they actually can f- forecast the economy in the near term. And my point is, even if you could, and I doubt if most can, even if you could, it wouldn't necessarily dictate. You couldn't make an investment policy out of right. that. Right. And it's another uh, example of market timing. We talk about market timing in terms right. of the stock market, but there's also uh, market timing in terms of the economy. And my, the best example of uh, how hard it is is that uh, in the summer of 2008, right before the worst crisis since uh, the Great Depression, uh, most people th- we're asking, is it going to be a slowdown, right. or might we turn into a mild recession? And it turned out the recession had been underway for six months before that, and the crisis was yet to come. We'd already had uh, Bear Stearns uh, being bailed out right. and all kinds of financial problems during the summer, and people still didn't see it coming. So it's not an easy call. And again, you'll get it right sometimes, but you'll get it wrong probably as many times or more times. And it's real easy for... Uh, politicians, policymakers, regulators, uh, to do things that can make a take a mild what might have been a mild recession and turn it into a horrible recession at right. the same time. Or also, uh, if you're investing, you could by calling it wrong, you're going to hurt yourself more than you help yourself. In the whole most point, cases, yeah, the whole point is you know you can't make an investment policy. You're you're always clear on that. Well, 
I'll start going down that little alley of talking of kind of market. It's not so much a forecast, but I'll give my feelings about whether the market's yeah. overvalued or undervalued. And you're always quick to point out, in my words, you can't make an investment yeah. And also, uh, we kind of uh, maybe fool ourselves to a certain extent, but it's a kind of safe game to play about you rebalance when you think things may be going one way or another. That's really a kind of market timing as well, but it's not really uh, – a, a terrible kind of uh, decision to get into. Like, if you think the market's going to go up, you may not be as eager to rebalance. But, uh, again, uh, we don't really know. Well, we all, as humans, again, I always say uh, human nature is a failed investor. And, uh, you know, recency bias uh, always comes in. You know, you guys, you see it. Uh, you know, you, well, even you guys have been in this business long enough now to see people literally almost before your eyes shift from, how come we have so much money in stocks to how come we have so much money in bonds in a pretty short order? And that's just, that's the essence of being a human. And what makes this, you know, when you look at, at the big picture and you say, wow, look at the f amazing returns that the ownership of the great companies of America are investing in the broad U.S. market as an example. You know, double-digit returns historically on average. On average, you would double your money every seven years. It's not me suggesting that's the future. It's We're looking in the past. And yet people seem to go out of their way to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory. And it's, that's the psychology of this that I think very few people understand. Well, I always like to say, you know, well, what does the data actually suggest? You know, let's go look and see in time periods where the yield curve inverted, what happened over the next block of time was there actually a market decline, you know, in a high percentage of those cases. And Dimensional Fund Advisors actually wrote a really good article about this. And they looked at, uh, it was like 14 different time periods where the yield curve had inverted um, in five different countries, including the U.S., so more developed countries. And so there were, that's a relatively small sample size, but, you know, you have 14 instances of that. And in 10 out of the 14 cases of yield curve inversion, the investors had positive investment returns over the next 36 months. So if you were to listen to some of the people on TV and, and react to a yield curve inverting and move your portfolio towards bonds, you're going to be worse off having done that 10 out of 14 times, historically speaking. Now, the exact odds, you don't really know. Again, that's a small sample size, but it's showing that more often than not, that's a a bad decision or it has been a bad decision so even if you knew ahead of time the yield curve was going to invert going to invert uh you know chances are you might have gotten it wrong from an investment standpoint in other words it's not going to tell you what to do with your investments and i think it's it's what fascinates me after doing this for 35 years is how people it's like they wake up one day and realize hey stock prices don't always go up uh you know sometimes they go down and and part of my letter to the client yesterday was, look, it's unknowable, but it's also irrelevant. Uh, guess what? We are going to have recessions at some point. I don't think that's been outlawed, has it, Fred? No. Nope. We're still going to have recessions <laughs> uh, periodically, though we are having them. Uh, there are fewer in post, yeah. you know, I mean, in, mo in modern times than there used to be, say, in the 1800s. There, yeah. Well, there's fewer and further between. Well, even the uh, the 50s and 40s and so on. There, uh, uh, the term no longer is uh, invoked now, but we just talk about the great moderation prior to uh, the uh, crisis in 2008. And from 1980 on, uh, the economy was uh, uh, had only roughly few 10 years or so of uh, recession and very mild recessions. And maybe we're back in that pattern now. All right. Uh, Stan, sorry. I probably, you've probably been on the line for a while. I just haven't looked over to my left to see you. Uh, uh, Stan, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for doing the show. I just wanted to talk about Steve Moore just for a minute. Uh, I'm going to let you is, address it to Fred, okay. though. This is for Fred. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, Moore is a uh, typical Trump uh, appointee to a federal position. He knows nothing about the position he's uh, being appointed to. And uh, the proof of that, there's two proofs to this. I don't know whether you caught when Steve Moore said that he was going to have a steep learning curve because he didn't know anything about the Federal Reserve after Trump made the uh, nomination. And then I think it was June of 2007, uh, Steve Moore wrote a big article saying how great the economy was doing and there was no dangers on the foreseeable, in the foreseeable future uh, for the economy of the country. Um, I think his words saying he was in... Uh, in, 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 ineligible to uh, do the job 
uh, should uh, be plenty, but I don't think that's going to happen. Stan, for a minute, I thought you were going to get political. Yeah. Well, again, if no, you this, if this you uh, real. no, I understand. I'm just I'm I'm just having a little fun with. If this you disqualify okay, people for. Fine. For making wrong predictions, you wouldn't have many people left to serve. But I think mean, the real question is whether uh, being a commentator uh, and writing articles about things is not the same as uh, as managing them. And uh, I, I think everyone agrees that uh, Moore doesn't have a, a, a deep background of knowledge about the actual workings of the Federal Reserve. He also goes in with a little bit of baggage now because he uh, a few months ago he said uh, uh, that Trump could actually fire the uh, uh, Powell, the, uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, and the argument was it was mismanagement of the economy. So he's going to – the Fed usually uh, is a, a fairly uh, uh, collegial kind of operation. They almost always end up with majority – not, not just majority, but unanimity in terms of their votes. And he's going to have to find a way to fit into the uh, pattern. If he's open and, and willing to learn, I think he can do all right, but he's not the uh, – the, the, the world's greatest monetary expert who might be and Fred, chosen. The, in all fairness, the Federal Reserve makes a lot of mistakes. I mean, uh, it, obviously, yeah. they're humans. Yeah. It's not as if they're perfect yeah. Yeah. and have a crystal ball. It really doesn't appear to be materially better than anybody else's. No, I mean, if he were going to be made dictator or, or czar of the Federal Reserve, I'd be much more wary than now. But again, uh, there are mistakes. There are mistakes. I mean, uh, in retrospect, we all make you know bad passes that end up in an interception, but it may have looked good at the the time. So the Fed, I don't think, makes a lot of unforced errors in the sense of just uh, getting it absolutely wrong and doing the wrong thing. They they sometimes do things that uh, will not they things that won't work out because the economy is different from what they expected. And it certainly seems like Bernanke. There's a lot of things I didn't agree with, and not outside of the Federal Reserve. Uh, but he certainly got that one right. We knew we were in a national emergency, probably created by bad policy, not Fed policy. Uh, but it, you know, certainly made things worse. But he certainly got that right. Uh, yeah, emergency was, liquidity is what that. And that was a, that was a complicated situation. And uh, whether he got it right in, in a perfect sort of way is debatable. But I'd rather have would rather have had him there than most anyone else managing that kind of crisis situation. Stan, anything else? Now, I think you touched on it, and I appreciate you mentioning the fact that uh, he was one of the ones trying to amplify Trump's power to uh, fire the Fed chair. He certainly seems to have a more volatile nature than you expect from a person who's going to be on the Federal Reserve. Well, if you're if you're a, a columnist and a, appear on uh, on uh, uh, shows, TV all shows yeah. all the time, you have to have a point of view. And, 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 it's, and it can't be milk toast, yeah. otherwise. They and don't he's obviously a, a very much of a pro Thanks, growth Dan. market kind of person, which, in, in a general way, is good. But whether that translates into an effective Federal Reserve uh, board member is another question. Well, I mean, different opinions. I mean, everybody's for diversity, right? It right. seems like these days that's the key word. And uh, there's certain aspect of Stephen Moore that I agree with and I like that maybe may be useful on that board just from a different perspective standpoint. Some right. people are a little some people understand business I think better than others. Yep. And I, I think he, he, he may he might be, I don't know, he might be. That's that's my hopes. Um, guys I want to shift to an article and we've we've kind of kicked around this before because we live it, we see it as advisors. Um, we see how our adult children can have a material impact on our retirement. And there was a a recent article in Barron's magazine, How Your Kids Can Ruin Your Retirement. And it goes on and talks about a fellow and his wife, he's 68, and suddenly his daughter's divorced, and now she's living at home, and her two children are living at home, and he has two children and entering college uh, as it is, and one of them has special needs. And just the highlight of the article is just, you know, kind of how he exhausted his federal pension to help for his special uh, needs uh, costs for his son. And now he's got this three and five year old grandchildren uh, he's taking care of, and he's back to the grindstone, as he put it. Uh, we kind of forget that just thinking about four year private colleges, and that they highlighted that in Barron. I don't think everybody has a right to go to necessarily to a private college, but it's around $50,000 and it's twice as much as it was in the late 80s, and they were talking about that. And also in the article, um, it talked that may put a statistic I thought was pretty interesting. Fifteen percent of twenty-five to thirty-five year olds were living at home in two thousand sixteen, and it goes on and we'll, we'll we'll bring some discussion into this. But how sometimes good intent can lead to some bad things, 
and in fact to talk about how it often starts small starts out small and then becomes bigger and bigger and more permanent and more permanent and more pricey at all times and the final statistic I'll read that this surprised me it's a little higher than I've experienced with my clientele but nearly 80% of parents give some financial support to their adult children so you guys are probably thinking I'm the original tightwad <laughs> uh, I don't do anything for you guys uh, you're the 20 so, percenter so question guys uh, you both have been at this now for you know David you've been in the industry for quite some time Ryan for the last few years but you've been around long enough to see this issue uh, close up and you know it live and in person yeah I mean I it is really common and I I, I don't think it's 80 percent of our clients that are not performing close, support yeah. and and some of them it's not even because their children need it so much as the parents want to do it but I I would say as far as things that really stress clients out a lot of times it has to do with a child going through a tough time the divorce example is perfect we've had that pop up a few times where you know a daughter's going through divorce they have children and right you know just to help them especially if okay now you've got two two places you've you know, the couple split up and you you know they're not living together anymore right. so you have to pay rent at an apartment and then continue paying your house and things like that and that can be a burden for people and, and, and tough love doesn't always apply right it's hard to be tough love in those circumstances that mm -hmm. they're thrown in or a, or if a child has an addiction problem or you know uh it, it's just you know there are times we you, i see it and I'll throw my opinion and talk a little tough love to them, but then there's some of these cases where that's just not appropriate. Yeah. And it also applies to, yeah, there, there are stories in the paper all the time about uh, uh, middle-aged people whose parents haven't figured out how to handle things, and it's the same sort of situation. Uh, you obviously uh, want to aid them, but whether you want to aid them to live a lifestyle that's uh, much higher than, uh, than their income and their life uh, work I would justify is another question. I think that's what they call that sandwich generation. I've mm -hmm. seen that up per, you know, personally through my business uh, occasionally where you're literally the 60-some-odd-year-old couple has a, a, one of their adult children living at home, costing them quite a bit of money, yeah. and at the same time, they're up at night worrying that mom and dad are going to run out of money yeah. and they're going to be on our doorstep financially yeah. too. And, yeah. and that's a real pressure cooker. And it shows the statistic, this surprised me a little bit, Seventy, nearly 70% 70 of parents surveyed by T. Rowe Price said they would be willing to delay retirement to pay for college. I know that's what I had to do. I, 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 in order for me to pay for college for myself, I had to delay retirement. Well, theoretically, everyone who pays for college is delaying retirement a little bit because it's a huge expense. I mean, if you didn't cover college for your children and just invested that for retirement, you'd and, be able and, to retire a lot earlier. And when you look at the data and you look at people 60 or over and how much college debt they still have or are responsible for in these parent plus loans, mm -hmm. that's gone up considerably in the last five or 10 years. So it's just more and more people yeah. doing more and more stuff for their yeah. children and it's tough. There is an argument though. I mean, we, these are people that uh, you don't worry a lot about, but there are people who have substantial uh, accumulations and it may make some sense to give away at least some of it while they're alive and, and as opposed to uh, bequeathing it when they after they die and, and that's, that's a, a delicate question but it's uh, it's a delicate question it's one that comes up frequently I would say in our practice that's more you know the, the conversation is more often about uh, pretty well healed parents and why wait to, you know I always talk about it, let's give it with warm hands not cold hands that's just my way of kind of bluntly talking about it and we spend a lot more time trying to get parents to do that we don't tell them what to do or what they should do but uh, just to let them see that if they ever wanted to do that, sometimes they don't even know that's possible. So, you know, they don't, people, unless somebody knows it's even possible, they're not going to probably take any action. And, mm -hmm. and it's really probably the most common theme for us is uh, parents that are helping their children voluntarily, not because their children need it as much as, hey, why wait till we wake up on a cloud? But even that, you you kind of run into similar issues where, I think I, the most common concern I hear from parents who are doing that, helping children voluntarily, is I don't want them to become dependent on it. I know they're not now, but I don't want them to become dependent. And even for you know the opposite situation where it's kind of because the children need the help, the, the biggest concern is, well, is, is this going to become a permanent problem because I'm solving their issues for them and now they don't have to you know change anything to lead a nice life. And that's, it, that's why I'm so mean to you guys. <laughs> it, it's so hard as a parent, and I'm speaking from the early days of a parent, but 
there's there's such a large gray area and how do you help and how do you be proactive in someone's life without overstepping boundaries and then causing the opposite like you're saying dave getting someone to be dependent on you or or instilling bad habits in an earlier age that maybe you wouldn't have had to deal with if you just let your kids maybe solve some of the problems on their own and it's a hard place to be in because there is no way to know until it's too late yeah i mean there's just you know uh i think it's jimmy john i listened to him one time and 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 I've heard him a number of times, and it's, it gets in with that. But he always says, "You the way you learn is through pain." Um, you know, that's I guess that feedback mechanism that allows you to feel it and make changes so it doesn't happen again. But it's a tough area um, that is probably the most I would say of all the financial planning issues that we have um, with our uh, good number of families that we're responsible for is how to delicately deal with that deal on a needs base. Some children need it and some people it's how do you deal with it if you have an abundance of wealth and it's clearly you have the opportunity to help your children when they're in their 40s or late 30s and early 50s. Uh, but you know I have one family that you know for a number of years would make fairly substantial gifts to their children and and one year we just made the decision, let's not do it this year, just <laughs> so that they don't wait, you know, expect that they're going to get this, you know, bag of cash, um, you know, set to them or given to them every year. And so I- this is not an easy thing to deal with. But how would you guys say, all right, well, we have children and you're going to have to think about this, obviously, uh, on, in your own case, at least for you, Ryan, at the moment, how should people plan on saving for college and yet not? wipe out their retirement or interfere with it so much which one as a parent which one's most important how do we balance this act we want to edge our we want to make sure our children have the education that or even our grandchildren have the education our children got how do you guys balance that i think you have to look at yourself first because the timeline for your kids going to college is a lot shorter than the timeline for you retiring and the timeline of you being in retirement is a lot longer than the timeline of your kids being in college. So you can flex the timing simply by making sure that you're putting deposits into your 401k or your retirement accounts in general first to make sure that you're not going to fund your kids' college and then wind up on their doorstep when they're older needing a place to stay. Uh, but you can you can first and foremost take care of yourself, and then you can start depositing in money into a 529 plan, for example, uh, to try to get some of that tax-deferred growth or completely tax-free, assuming you use it the right way. Isn't that, I mean, just making the case, uh, saying you probably shouldn't go it alone. Um, you really need to be deliberate about that and start doing some level of planning, even if it's a fairly basic plan of, okay, it's a two-goal plan. We need to educate our children to a point, and we also need to build, accumulate enough money to control our own time is what I call retirement. And... You know, the chance of you getting that right without a, like I said, it doesn't have to be a comprehensive plan, but at least some guidelines from an advisor. Or it could even be a certified public accountant that you buy an hour of their time and say, hey, just help me down the path of this so that I get it at least uh, largely right. Yeah, and obviously a, a good plan is better than a bad plan. There, uh, there's a story, I think it's true, but uh, there was a, a guy in his 50s who was living a, a pretty uh, – Good lifestyle, uh, cars, house, houses, vacations. And yet he had but that, very, that wasn't me, by the yeah, way. No, and he had a very uh, modest kind of job. And someone asked him, "How do you afford this?" He said, oh, "I'm I'm a waiter." <laughs> and the answer was, uh, "You work in the restaurant." No, I'm waiting for my parents to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of that that goes on. You know, uh, the the other thing I'll say, savings aside, I think uh, a really important thing to do is be really deliberate about. I guess shopping around, for lack of a better term, for the college that you go to. I think a lot of people don't do that, mm-hmm. despite the fact that college is really probably the biggest purchase decision for a lot of people, especially if they have multiple children. And for some reason, I think people just feel like they, they don't always look at the price. They just kind of want their child to be able to go wherever they want to go. And, and that's nice if you can afford it, but it's like there's realities to life. If you can't afford to send your child to a certain school, then that's just not in the cards. And you just have to kind of communicate that to your child. I know that's harder than <laughs> Well, than you mean like sounds. real life? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, it's just reality. Yeah. Does, do, do you maybe not wait till they're 18 years old to have that discussion? Isn't that something maybe is they're a little bit younger and they're 
as soon as they turn into their teenagers, you start bringing in a dose of reality about yeah. here's where mom and dad are going, here's what we think we can do for you. You put, you allow them to have some skin in the game. In other words, start connecting the dots of what this amount of money really means and, and, and what it takes to do that. And then start, then maybe you, you bring up that, well, here's the, a lot of options. There's a lot of ways to do it from not everybody should go to college. You can become an electrician or a plumber. Uh, a, 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 a trade that is respectable trade and earn probably more than a lot of college majors getting out of freshly minted college agents and then if you're going to go to the education route well what about a local community college for the first couple of years uh, I have this belief and maybe I'm just a cranky old guy at this point but when I hear young college students or the younger generation whine about this college debt crisis which I don't think is a crisis uh, in any with any sense of proportionality, uh, it makes me wonder well, where was the responsible adult in this right. that says, "Hey, by the way, uh, don't <laughs> don't borrow more money than your beginning salary." You know, so if you're going to get out with a degree that you make thirty thousand a year, don't come out of college with an education with a debt of a hundred thousand dollars. It just yeah. doesn't make sense, and it's the other this sense of entitlement. I think it's, it's crept in, Fred. That well, everybody has a right to go to college. Yeah, there, there, there are two. Uh, kind of unpleasant news stories the last week or so that come together. The first one was the uh, uh, thing about uh, parents bribing to uh, uh, to get their children into college. Uh, the other, which is really uh, sad, was the uh, suicide of uh, of uh, famous economist uh, Alan Kruger, and he, he actually wrote an article. Uh, just he was a, a, a successful, seemingly happy person. Right. But anyway, uh, he wrote an article, and what he did was to look at people who had applied to Ivy League schools and been accepted. And then he looked at some people who chose not to go there but went to Miami or right. University of Illinois or someplace like that instead. And it turned out they did just as well financially and uh, lifestyle and so on as the people going to Ivy League schools. So it turned out it was more a matter of the quality of the people going in as opposed to what they what they actually got in the uh, in the university, so <clears throat> the choice between going to a, a state school and a, and a private school may have some prestige differentials, but in terms of actually producing uh, um, income or whatever, it's probably not very different. Yeah, I guess my views are pretty rigid because the only option I had for uh, get a college education was I was going to pay for a hundred percent of it, and then I looked. Well, I wasn't too good to go to Parkland for two years, uh, save a lot of money while I was working full time during that period. And that allowed me then to go to a state school, Eastern Illinois. Um, I'd like to tell you I finished it in two years, but you know, I had two brothers down there. We had a little bit of fun <laughs> at Eastern, so I was a little delayed. It took me three. And I think I walked out with a $10,000 debt. That was 1982. Uh, so call it maybe like double or you know, $25,000 today. And uh, so this sense of entitlement has definitely crept in. And I think parents get that pressure then. They get pressure not only from their children's expectations, but then their friends and family. And, you know, how come we're not going to the colleges our cousins or our, you know, brothers are going to? Yeah, it's an investment decision. And, again, if you're going to be an Uber driver, you don't necessarily go out and buy a Mercedes to uh, – take people around you you have to balance the cost of the investment against the return so again uh, uh the return probably isn't sufficient to justify aside from prestige issues uh, most of these decisions so when it comes to financing it uh we've seen a lot of people use uh home equity lines of credit but that's you know in a rising interest rate environment and now you can't write them off the interest off unless you're actually using it for home ec for home fix-up purposes the way i understand the law and uh you know, so what do you you know should people even do that or what can they look to their taxable brokerage accounts and maybe leverage those not in other words not on margin but you're saying look i have need for money and you can borrow at a fairly reasonable rate does that even make sense yeah, I think it does. I mean, simply, I think the tax law change kind of pushes people to maybe get away from that home equity line of credit option. It still exists, but it's not the the value it was before. Using a brokerage account could be a substantially better option simply compared to maybe tapping a different account, uh, rather just because the tax will be lower. If you have long-term capital gains, presumably uh, you might be paying 15% on that, on that gain rather than maybe 
pulling money out of another place and, and paying ordinary income rates. Um, so that would be a good option. Um, Dave, did you, did you have something you wanted to add on it? Oh, one thing I was going to say is you don't necessarily have to go the home equity line. I mean, if you had a lot of, of uh, equity built up in your home, you could refinance the whole thing, just refinance for another 30 years because theoretically you're probably, what, in your late 40s or 50s when your children are in college. If you If your house is substantially paid down, that might be a fairly significant amount of money that you could basically pull out of the house, use to fund college. And that's going to have a lower interest rate than like a home equity line. You could do a 30-year fixed mortgage. I mean, people don't like that idea because they're like, well, I'm going to be paying it off when I'm 80. But it's really not the end of the world to have that mortgage payment. I would, I'd be more apt to do that, I think, than uh, a home equity line of credit because at least you have the ability to uh, lock in your interest, your cost of money for 30 years or 15 years. The whole point is there's a lot of pressure on parents. Yeah. And it really can get in the way of a of a retirement, and it can post it can it can really turn your retirement into a disaster. And the college is often uh, a, a bet the uh, lending that they'll come to a student and say, "Look, you can go for practically nothing." But practically nothing it means borrowing a huge amount, which usually is borrowed by the the parents. So uh, the, the kids probably don't realize the long term implications. And as long as the uh, parent's name is on the on the loan, they're they're going to be stuck with it. Do you think, Fred, uh, just to spitball in here, uh, 10, 20 years from now, do you think we'll have as many four-year physical campuses as we do today? Uh, probably not. Uh, it's very hard. Co- colleges have a, a, a kind of almost indefinite life. That they're like Sweetbriar in Virginia was totally bankrupt. They were going to close, and then a bunch of people got together, and they're open now and losing money. I was uh, uh, coming back from O'Hare a couple of days ago, and just kind of a nondescript uh, neighborhood in, in North Chicago, uh, in the Ch- north part of Chicago, and there's a huge billboard saying, uh, uh, come to Bowling Green, it's a great place to go. So colleges are out to do whatever they can to, to make it happen, but it's getting increasingly difficult. Like uh, Eastern is doing well, but uh, Western and Southern are not doing well in Illinois, and they're, they're hurting for students. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a, look, this is a, uh, certainly it's one area uh, college exp- expenses for parents that get in the way of retirement can really postpone and destroy a retirement. But uh, these curveballs of adult children uh, needing help in retirement is a pretty common theme. Yeah. And sometimes the best thing to do is talk to your financial advisor and say, you know, I just need to make, I need to wonder, should I do it? Could I do it? You know, what what are the downsides of doing that? Um, Sometimes you can't help people a little bit. Sometimes if you take them on, you're taking them on for life. And I, I was going to say, I don't really think of it so much as, you know, helping your children versus retirement or being able to retire. Because I think most people faced with the decision of helping a child and, and working an extra couple of years, they're going to say, yeah, I'll work a couple extra years to help my child when they need help. And it's like, well, yeah, that sounds good. But really, it might be more of an issue of, helping your child versus running out of money. If you're giving them an amount that is unsustainable or it causes your portfolio to not be big enough and then you're forced into retirement, which there's a high percentage of people that retire earlier than they planned. I forget the statistic, but it's really high. And sometimes it's for health reasons, disabilities. Exactly. So that can cause problems and then you're forced into retirement and you're either living a very, very modest lifestyle or you can end up running out of money and then like you... I think Ryan mentioned, end up being dependent on your children. So, so you guys have run, you know, even for yourselves, uh, you know, with, with planning. If you, you have a new baby, let's just say just freshly minted baby child, um, and figure using an 18-year time frame, conceptually how much money, if you wanted to go to a public, you know, university, it, it'll get today's rates, say, call it 35000 a year plus some level of inflation. Um, do you guys recall what it takes if you really wanted to fund 100% of it for over that 18-year period, how much monthly or annually you'd have to put aside? I do. The numbers I ran are similar to what you're saying, so it's going to be unique in each situation. But for me to fund roughly a $30,000 a year uh, college would be about putting in $9,000 a year for about 18 years into a 529 plan and invested fairly aggressively along the way, not putting much in bonds. Um, and that's simply because we're looking about 20 years out, we're going to have inflation. And we also have the high cost of college education rising 
faster than um, anything else is rising. So you have to get over that hurdle as well. Yeah, I think if I'm doing the planning now, I would I would use the cost of an education probably going down, not up. That's just my theory. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of competition from these, uh, you know, high quality internet based colleges that will have. Nobel Prize winners teaching their investment courses and their economics courses, or whatever the courses are. I always think of business terms, but I guess there's other majors besides business. <laughs> That's the thing is it's so tough to know what to do, though, because well, you, do something. you you don't want to bank on that, right. and then it, college costs continue increasing at the rate they increased since 1980 at like 6% annualized, and now you're way undersaved. Right. But there, there's no reason, though, you, you have to have 100% coverage. I mean, if, if right. you if, say you got 80%, you borrow some money or cut back on, you know, right. pay for it out of current income or take a little bit of debt. So, again, no one says you have to walk in the door with four years paid. You can always make adjustments, just like your retirement could be adjusted. Right, because so, we don't know what returns are going to be. We don't know what the costs are going to be of college education. We don't know what level of, of the r- yeah. rate, the increase, is it going to increase at an increasing rate or decreasing rate? There's a lot of things you don't know, but that's not an excuse to yeah. not somehow say, okay, uh, we would rather be approximately right than precisely wrong. Let me say one word. Uh, sure. I should have said a few minutes ago, but the, the worst of all worlds, though, is to borrow money uh, and have a student go to school and then not finish. Not yep. finishing is the uh, killer. You don't get any premium for being in college for a year or two and not not graduating. So if you have a student that's not serious or not motivated, uh, it's probably uh, uh, not a great bet to borrow a lot of money to uh, – Find that no question, and you know we've seen that happen, and again, that can be devastating because you know it's a it's a long term problem, and uh, you know I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I, I'm getting to a point where I look at college kids these days. Again, I'm getting old and cranky. I think I'm not sure I'd hire college kids. They come out with all these weird views, probably like I did back in 1982, I suppose. Was but, your hair long then, Paul? Uh, uh, yes. In fact, I always make this joke when I'm buying pants. I said, when I was in college, I had a 32 waist and a 36 inch inseam. Now I have a 36 waist and a 32 inch inseam. I don't know what happened. It's only been 35, 36 years, 37, I guess, since college. Well, look, uh, I guess my advice is these things are going to happen to a certain amount of people. A lot of this is, you know, is outside of your control. Random things happen. We call them curveballs in life. Uh, the thing is, if you start out young enough in life preparing for curveballs, unnamed curveballs, we know that we have to plan for retirement at some point. We know that we may have to educate or partially educate, cover the cost partially for our children. Uh, we know that we have long-term care potential issues way down the road. Um, these are things that just take planning because I guess planning is, it allows you some room. They, uh, they call it margin for error. I call it margin for life. And, uh, you know, not, and half the people don't do any type of planning at all. Someone asked me who our biggest competitor is. I said, it's people not doing anything. Right. And, and that's the most realistic answer. But the yeah. sad uh, <coughs> I'm talking about all the negative news, but the, yeah, Fred, the sad news this week is that uh, <laughs> people are finding out that their prepaid tuition plans are not uh, sufficient to fund the tuition, and it's not guaranteed by the state of Illinois either. So even if you're with the best intention, you went uh, uh, forward and, and said, I'm going to buy this sure. now, and my, my uh, kids are guaranteed that their tuition will be paid. Well, now it's in, in limbo. It's up to the General Assembly to bail out the uh, the, yeah, uh, that, that's a tuition plan. That would be quite concerning if you've done everything right. You thought you locked up, you know, four semesters or eight semesters. Or how many you purchased? It struck me, Fred, that that plan on a, you know, conceptually, I like the idea a lot, but it seemed like it was built on some strange expectations of returns. Well, yeah, it was, uh, it's and a, cost of, you know, yeah. I think they underestimated the rising cost, and uh, and you know, there's probably other dynamics at play, but. I couldn't have looking if I was a pension fund, so to speak, or or putting a plan together, and someone said, "Okay, I want guaranteed," you know, yeah, it was I guess it would be sixteen semesters. No, maybe for me it was <laughs> so two times eight semesters locked away. Maybe you've put one hundred and twenty thousand dollars away in the few, you know in today's dollars, thinking my children are locked in. Right. It struck me the assumptions that you had to make to do that were just unrealistic. Well, I, and I, I, it wasn't. Just a mistake. It was also, at the time, the politicians who did this 20 years ago are probably long retired now. They got credit for 
making they college affordable. It, right. And they but probably, yeah. the point is uh, there are actuarial assumptions like life expectancy and things of that sort and economic assumptions about uh, what the rate of inflation is going to be, but there are also how much is it going to cost to go to college is basically – uh, in a state school, a combination of economic factors and political factors, and they've chosen not to fund public education very, very uh, fully in the last uh, decade or two, and consequently, tuition rates have gone up a lot, and that means it's very expensive now. To Just as an aside, uh, how much uh, of the inflation of, of – I'm thinking of uh, college at this point, university level – how much of that is just because it was so easy to borrow money? Just kind of just do you think well, that had an impact? Yeah, it's a big deal, I think, and also the uh, the way federal guidelines work is kind of strange. Like if you're a, a poor person and can't afford to uh, buy your food, uh, you get food. But they don't say you get to go to the most expensive restaurant in town. But if, if you're a poor student. Uh, the amount of aid you get going to an expensive college is much more than if you go to a, a low-cost college. I want to read a text. It says, this is from Mike. It says, hi, can you discuss something that insurance salespeople love to tout, which is buying life insurance policies with the goal of leaving money to their, to their heirs tax-free? Can you please discuss the pros and cons of doing that, including other options? Could you please also discuss the tax consequences of inheriting Roth IRAs? Thanks, and that's Mike. Uh, let's take the Roth IRAs first, guys, because that's going to be easy. So you inherited uh, a Roth IRA from your parents or grandparent or a stranger. What it doesn't matter. Um, what are the What are the things people need to think about? What What are the givens when it comes to an inherited Roth IRA? Well, first of all, there's not going to be any taxes when you inherit that money. I think people always get concerned about that anytime they inherit money, but. Um, then when the money comes out of the Roth IRA, it still comes out tax-free, just like it was your own Roth IRA. The difference is you're forced to take money out of it. So when you have an inherited Roth IRA, every year you're going to have it's called a required minimum distribution. And it's just a minimum amount that you have to distribute. You don't have to spend it. You can move it over to a different investment account, like a brokerage account. But that basically is a mechanism so that you don't get to just keep letting money grow tax-free for multiple generations and then let's get on because yeah i, I do re- realize that there are occasionally as touted well if you want to leave your kids money buy a big life insurance policy um what do you guys think <laughs> about that I'll, I'll tell you what i think about it. i think it's i think for really wealthy families i can see some some reasons to maybe do that i think of liquidity issues tax issues uh you're just buying discounted dollars but i think for the for the everyday client that we deal with, kind of the millionaires next door, uh, I wouldn't. I've never recommended that. Uh, what's your guys' take on it, just from a financial planning standpoint? Well, I mean, if I'm going to earmark money for my children, and then they're going to continue, hopefully, investing it for the, the rest of their lifetime, the time horizon's so long. Uh, if you look at the returns of a whole life policy, they tend to be pretty good fixed income-like returns, but that's still a lot lower than the expected return of an all-stock portfolio. So if I'm just earmarking money purely for inheritance, I'm never going to touch it. I'm putting that in a 100% stock portfolio, and not just that, probably 100% small cap value stocks. But that's for you. You're not recommending what – it's not a recommendation what people would do. I'm just – You're talking about personally that's what your view would be. Because it's going to leave a much – for the same amount of money that you invest, it's, it's very, very high likelihood that you're going to end up with a lot more money. Uh, left as an inheritance. And then as far as it, well, but the life insurance comes to the kids tax-free, but that's kind of the same deal, at least in under current law. Who knows what it's going to be? You know, I guess it's not, can't take it for granted that it's always going to be tax-free for insurance policies, too, at the same time. I assume it will be. Yeah. Uh, but with a with the estate tax, you know, it's pretty generous. It essentially would go to children tax-free with for reasonable people. Is that the case yeah that's the thing is for most people they're not paying tax anyways because even if like i know the the caller mentioned a a roth ira but even if you had a just a i call it a taxable brokerage account but a non-retirement account you get a step up in cost basis when that money's inherited and as long as you don't have more than what the lifetime exemption amount is for estate taxes the vast majority of people are not going (coughs) to owe any estate taxes the person inheriting the money isn't going to owe any taxes when they inherit it. It's just, you know, each year, I guess, and, and that's not going to be any different than a life insurance policy yeah. either so going there, forward. You, you've run all the numbers up and down, and you, can run, you guys can run numbers as good as anybody. You're saying you've looked at the math, and that's not something you would ever recommend. 
Right. right. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the general rule, which probably is, doesn't apply generally, is that uh, buy insurance for unexpected uh, situations, catastrophes, early death, uh, right. disability, things of that sort. And uh, don't buy it for investment purposes. Buy, right. buy it to meet the, for the protection. Uh, protection and then separate your investment into a separate uh, category. Yeah, I don't think insurance and investing for 99.9% of the people makes sense. I, I don't, I've never looked at insurance as an investment. I don't think it should be. Uh, I think it's something you do to protect a shortfall or something you can't afford to take that risk on your own because you're one person. You're allowed to pool that risk with others and through an insurance vehicle and you know make it very economical so you know when it comes to life insurance it's term not whole life so uh, yeah again it's not to say that there's never that it never makes sense to buy whole life i can just tell you in 35 years i've never recommended when a client or a person just off the street said hey this is what i'm being suggested what do you think i've never made the recommendation of whole life i could say that with the variable annuities too again these are very highly commissioned uh, products that are being sold doesn't make them evil. It's just saying, look, there's a huge, huge conflict of interest for people that sell products and earn big commissions. Um, again, it doesn't make them bad people. There's a lot of great people, I think, in what I would call a bad system. I just don't. I think that conflict of interest is a is really hard to get over, and that's why so many people call us for second opinions, and which we're always happy to do uh, before they buy a product from someone selling those products with high commissions. Just run it by somebody who's independent. Uh, if we think it makes sense, we'll tell you it makes sense. If we don't, we'll, we'll try to give you some ideas that will give you a greater yeah. piece of The other of mind. side is that uh, term insurance is really a good deal now. Uh, so you can you can buy insurance very cheaply to deal with these emergency catastrophe kind of situations. Yeah, I think you always have to step back as investors and say, okay, who is it that's telling me to do this? Are they a fiduciary advisor that has no axe to grind, no conflict of interest when it comes to selling products, or is it an insurance or a stockbroker that get, earn their compensation by selling products and earning commissions? Again, it doesn't make them bad, but you should always step back and say, you know, uh, who's, who's suggesting this and what's in it for them? And it always leaves you with that feeling, well, I wonder if they're telling you because it's in my best interest or theirs. Again, if you hire a fiduciary registered investment advisor, that's one way to get away from that conflict of interest. Well, guys, that's it for the show. Here we are at 1059 already. Thanks, Dr. Fred Gertz, for joining us. And certified financial planner professionals, David Rudy and Ryan Repko. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.